So welcome. If you're a first-time guest, I want to thank you for coming this morning. We aren't a perfect church, but we love Jesus Christ dearly, and so thank you for coming. I just want to let you know, I'm Tim. Uh, I'm one of the pastoral residents here. Uh, I am not the lead pastor. Mark Vrogop is. He'll be back next week, and so if you are a first-time guest, come back next week. In fact, if you're sitting next to somebody you don't know, would you just look at them right now and say, come back next week? (laughs) Well, you didn't do it. So if you're sitting next to somebody you don't know, would you look at them, and you know them, just invite them back anyway. Say, come back next week. (laughs) All right, there we go. Everyone's been invited back, and bring a friend with you, why don't you? Uh, Turn with me in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. We're so glad that we are an imperfect people, that we serve a God who is perfect, and that in our imperfection, we are learning to be like our perfect God, because we have been made into the image of Jesus Christ, and our lives are lived realizing that we have been made into the image of him. I don't know if you guys have ever seen something unclearly before. I didn't know this, but for like the last couple of years, I had been seeing images uh, unclearly. And so, uh, you know, about four months ago, I got these things. They're fantastic. I didn't know how good-looking y'all were until I got these things. Last time uh, I preached, uh, I, 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 I mean, you guys looked good, don't get me wrong, but now, like, man, look at that, right? You're good-looking people. Congratulations. You know, glasses really help you see something, and because of that, last time I had no idea. There were, there's people up there. Look at that, right? I can look up and see all of you. My wife has never been more beautiful. I knew she was beautiful, but now I can see her Clearly, glasses have a way of doing that, causing us to lift our eyes and see things clearly. And here's what Peter's going to do in 1 Peter chapter 4. And by the way, if you're not there, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Peter, this whole time, has been helping us as Christians come to the realization of what to do in a culture that we don't belong in. You don't belong in it because you are Christian. This is not the final destination. If you're not a follower of Christ, that may not make sense, and I'm praying that today it makes more sense after coming in here than when you came in here before. But as a follower of Christ, you are in exile, Peter calls you. You don't belong. Wherever you are is not where you're going to be forever. And so because of that, there are things we endure. Specifically, 1 Peter helps us deal with the subject of suffering. Suffering is incredibly difficult. And suffering is something that isn't surprising to us because all people at all time have suffered. In fact, look at how Peter begins in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, a fatherly, affectionate term. Beloved, do not be surprised. Don't let it take you by surprise at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Another one, it just happens to you. You didn't do anything to get into it. You didn't do anything to even deserve it. It just happens to come upon you to test you. Okay, so this fiery trial isn't coming upon you. This word test isn't to to see if you're going to make it or not. As followers of Christ, that has already been secured fully and surely through the cross of Christ. So it's not testing you to see if you have it or not. It's testing you to show what you're made of. So don't be surprised. Tests come. And then he continues on as though something strange were happening to you. Because in this life, we all go through fiery 
trials. They burn. They hurt. And we go through them, Peter says, because we are not of this world. That's the first three chapters. He, we go through these things, he says, because our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and everything else in this world is perishable, is defiled, is fading, and so we are bulwarks of righteousness being made righteous by Christ in a culture, in a world that is continuing to depreciate in its value and in its, in its morals and its worthiness, and we stand and we're getting hit left and right, because we are different. It, to sum it all up, here's what Peter says, to look at all of suffering in First Peter. Suffering is what we endure, because in the drama of redemption of this broken world, like you live in a broken world, service as a kingdom of priests, it's not easy, it's not well received, and it is not always appreciated. Have you been there before? As a follower of Christ, you stand for what Christ would stand for, and it just does not go well. Or you live in your marriage as God has called you to live, and it just simply does not seem to be received well. Or you live, work in your job as God has called you to work, and it just seem, simply does not get received well. And you suffer for being a follower of Christ. Now, I have good news for you if you've ever suffered, or if you're currently suffering, or if you will suffer one day. In fact, if you're human, I have good news for you, and it's this. When we look to Scripture to see what God says about suffering, we find out something very important, that all of God's people in God, all of time have suffered. So if you're in here suffering today, God has something to say to you. Well, look at all, I mean, just, just think of Scripture, of the, the, the heroes of the faith. When we look at the Old and New Testament, goodness, Cain, or Cain didn't, I mean, he ended up suffering. Like, Abel suffered, right? Like, right from the beginning, he made a proper sacrifice to God and was murdered for it. Abraham suffered, Isaac suffered, Jacob suffered, Joseph suffered, Moses suffered, God's people suffered, the kings and the priests of the Old Testament suffered, the prophets in the Old Testament suffered. You get into the New Testament, all 12 uh, uh, disciples were, uh, were, were killed or murdered for their faith, except for the apostle John, who was, history tells us, boiled in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in oil and then uh, sent to an island uh, to, to kind of die his life out. All of them suffered. And then Jesus suffered, right? Jesus suffered for your sake and my sake, and in all of that, he promised we would suffer. John 15, 20, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. How does Peter describe Jesus' suffering? Look at chapter one, or, or chapter two, verses 21 through 25. Peter says, "For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, but when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
So when we look in the Old Testament, when we look in the New Testament, when we examine the disciples, when we examine Christ, when we look at church history, when we look at your own life, do you know what you find about suffering? Everyone does it. And God's not ignorant of that. It doesn't make it fun, but God does have a purpose in it. It doesn't make it easy. In fact, it's hard, but there's a saying around here, hard isn't bad. God has a purpose in your suffering, and that's what Peter wants you to see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. That it's not surprising, but man, it is sanctified. That God has set apart suffering and the life of a believer for a purpose, and the purpose is this. In fact, if I was going to write a statement down and taking notes, hint, here is the statement. Suffering reveals the worth of Christ, the worthiness of the Christian, and the trustworthiness of the Creator. Someone needs to hear that today. Suffering reveals the worth of Christ, the worthiness of the Christian, and the trustworthiness of the Creator. Let's see what we mean here by suffering reveals the worth of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 4, continuing, continuing on now in verse 13. Look at what it says. This isn't strange, continuing on, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. There's, there's kind of like a, a paradox created here, right? A paradox is uh, a statement that two things separate, you understand they're valid, but when you put them together, it just doesn't make sense. And so in this, Peter has put together sharing in Christ's sufferings and rejoicing. But then he goes even further, continuing on verse 13. Look at what he does here. That you may also rejoice and be glad. So there's something about sharing in Christ's sufferings that allows us to not only as followers of Christ rejoice, but also be happy about it. We don't get to write it off, right? Peter's going to nail us down and say, no, no, it's not just like, well, you know, I'll go through it. But in that process, you're exuberant. Like, this is a good thing that is happening. Now, why can Peter say that? If you're not a follower of Christ, you're looking at me right now saying, okay, suffering produces joy and gladness. Crazy talk. But look at what Peter does. Look at how he continues on. May rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So that's the key. What is it about the revealed glory of Christ that even if we suffer, in fact, we would strive to share in his sufferings so that we can rejoice and be glad even in suffering? Well, glory is uh, a word. It means uh, weight or beauty or worth. Weight, like, uh, it outweighs everything else. There's nothing that compares. It crushes everything. Beauty, as in, it is incredible to behold. It, compared to everything else, it has beauty. Worth is that it, it is worth more, right? It, it has a greater value than everything else. In fact, uh, think about it like this. Let's imagine that you're at a typical American wedding, and, uh, you know, you file in, and the, the groomsmen are on this side, I think, right? And the bride's 
family is on this side, and uh, so, you know, the, the, everyone sits down, and then the music changes, and uh, the minister and the, the groomsman comes out, right, or the, the groom come out, and so they stand there, and it's good. You just kind of know the thing's starting, but you're not impressed at all, right? That, that day's not about him. I mean, in that process, what is impressive about a nervous uh, 20-something guy in a rented tuxedo, Right? There's nothing impressive about that. He stands next to the minister, nothing impressive about that. But then a moment happens. The whole room changes. The music changes. The feeling changes. The doors open after everyone's processed, processed, everyone's come down. (laughs) And, And then the bride comes. And in that moment, she has more glory than everybody else in that room, right? Like, no one looks back at the bride and go, yeah, okay, that's good, look at the, you know, right? That just doesn't happen. <laughs> Everyone stands in honor of the one who brings the glory. She carries more weight, okay, careful term, especially, <laughs> right? <laughs> she carries more uh, you know what I mean. I'm just gonna. She carries more. She carries more influence than everybody else in the room. She carries more value. That whole thing is for her. That in that moment, and she carries more beauty. There's not a single person in the room that matches a bride on her wedding day. Now this is what glory is, and in this process of this beauty and worth and weight, we see that there's something about suffering that when the glory, the beauty, and weight, and worth of Christ is revealed, not only do we endure suffering, but we rejoice about it, and we're happy, because we get to share with Christ in his suffering. In this, uh, the idea of that we're looking for here is that Christ, according to Peter, is not just Glorious, but he's so glorious, he's worth going through anything for. How is that even possible? You see, when we see Christ, we're not just looking at a Jewish man from Galilee who was born 2,000 years ago and lived a pretty good life, stuck to his religion well, and then died a really sad death. When we look at Christ, we are looking at the one who is the image of the invisible God. We are looking at the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created. We are looking at the one who is eternal from the beginning. He was with God. All things made through him. And that word that Jesus who was in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Bible's claim is that Jesus Christ is the image of God, is God himself coming in the flesh. And when you behold Jesus Christ, you behold God. Now, why is that important to know? Because God is not just glorious as an attribute. He is the king of glory. 
Psalm 24, verses 7 and 8. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. That when you behold Jesus Christ, you're not just looking at something that's beautiful or something that has weight or something that has worth. You're looking at the king of all beautiful things, the king of all things worthy, the king of all things that have weight and value. And so what Peter says is that in our suffering, he is so wonderful. He is unmatched in beauty. He is unmatched in value. And we'll even share in his suffering so that we can be with him. Rejoicing in being glad. And that's why it's so crazy to say that Jesus Christ is worth everything, even suffering. And Christians know that. Or to be more careful, we ought to. I mean, I I bet if you're in here today and you've suffered, so if you're human, you've had moments in life where the worth of Christ was outweighed, not in reality, but in your head, in the way that you live, in the things that you give honor to, in the way that you uh, find value and worth, and the king of glory was replaced with what was something else. And so what Peter's going to do is he's going to show us that suffering reveals the worth of Christ. But not only that, that suffering reveals the worthiness of the Christian. Now, what is worth versus worthiness? They're different words. Now, for example, I actually bummed this off of uh, Brad Merchant, one of our pastoral residents, because, uh, you know, I, I don't have cash, uh, but he does, so if you need money, ask him. And um, <laughs> this is a $5 bill. Uh, this has This has worth. Well, kind of, right? There's this little thing on it that says, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private, and then it has a stamp on it, United States Federal Reserve System. So the worth is actually found in the Federal Reserve, and the worthiness is found by its relation to what is assigned by the Federal Reserve, right? For example, if you were going, uh, I don't know, you needed me to bust you out of jail or whatever, right? We're not a perfect church. You needed me to bust you out of jail and uh, call Brad because he has real money. But I, um, let's just say I came and I was like, I have 500 of these, right? (laughs) This is monopoly money. It has no value in the real world. In the world of monopoly, it's worth, you know, I don't know, uh, twice around the board, pass and go or whatever. It's worth some rent, maybe. But this has actually no value. So if I come up and I slide it across the table and I say this, here, I'm bailing them out, 500 bucks. They're not going to look at me crazy. Even if I bring my, uh, you know, get out of jail free card, right? (laughs) Has no value. It's useless. See, what's assigned worthiness is based on what has worth. And as a follower of Christ... You are not only to behold the worth of Christ, the unmatched beauty, the king of glory, but because you get to do that, Christ has assigned you worthiness. This is our testimony as Christians. We have nothing worthy in and of ourselves. But in suffering, we get to see really what we claim most of the time, that my worth 
My worthiness is found in Christ. Look at verse 14, and you'll see what I mean of, oh, that's 1 John, of 1 Peter chapter 4. It says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, okay, so if you, when you're enduring suffering, he's going to give you an example. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Okay, what does the word blessed mean? It means you're favored, you're honored. So the blessing isn't what people give you. The blessing is the favor that they show you. And of course, that is shown in giving stuff, right? When you say, man, someone just blessed me. Some, they just, they gave you something. But the fact is they're showing you favor and giving you something because you have their favor. So what P Peter is saying is if you're insulted, you're enduring suffering for Christ, you are shown favor, and here's the reason why. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Did you know that as a follower of Christ, you have the very spirit of God that is the unmatched beauty, worth, and value of God placed on you? Not just around you, not just about you, but on you. That Christ, who is worthy of all things, has sealed you by his Spirit, and in his Spirit you have been deemed worthy. Not because you brought anything, but because as a Christian you bear the very Spirit of God. Not only that, but look at verse 16. We'll come back to verse 15. I didn't skip any. We'll look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. That is, not only do you have the unmatched beauty, value, and worth of oh, beauty, weight, and worth of the Spirit of God, you get to bear the very name of Christ. The very name that is the matchless name. The very name that is the perfect name. You bear his name. You are a living exposition of the very person of God to this culture. You are the one that Peter said is holy and undefiled. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. You bear the very name of Christ so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So in this process of Christ being beautiful, more valuable, more weighty than everything else on earth, the King of glory revealed to us through the gospel, he has put his spirit on you and he has put your name on you and you bear him to the world. That's why you suffer. Or, to be more careful, that's why you ought to suffer. See, we get in a lot of trouble because we are made, we are made to glorify the one who's worthy of all glory. And when we put weight, value, and beauty that goes to God alone on other things, we find ourselves empty. I mean, teenagers, how many times have you put the weight on the relationship only to be brokenhearted again? 
Young adult, how many times have you put the weight, the value, the beauty, the goal of life, what you want to reflect with who you are on the next job only to be broken again? How many times have we put that on our future wished spouse or on our current spouse if we're married only to be broken again and realize they're not Jesus? How many times have we put it on uh, the desire for children? I've walked that road only to find out that you're brokenhearted again. How many times have we put it as we grow older on how we used to be when we were younger? Because we forget the reality is when we were there, it wasn't that good anyways. I mean, how often have you put weight, value, and beauty on things that cannot hold the weight? And our matchless king can. So in this process, what Peter's going to do in verse 15 is he's going to begin to point out ways in which we detract with our life the glory of God. Look at verse 15. I I want you to know that I didn't skip it. Verse 15, it says this. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. Okay, so if you're a murderer in here, I want you to know that the goal of your life is not to suffer as that. But if you just simply take life, well, it's like the same thing in Scripture, right? That is, maybe you haven't ever murdered anybody, but maybe the aim of your life, the aim of your job, the what kind of helps you feel good about yourself is knowing you can empower, you can power over others. Uh, maybe uh, it says, but none of you suffer as a thief. I want you to know, if you're a thief in this room, that's not your design by God. But maybe you're not a thief, but maybe you take things that others, that are others, or that others deserve. I mean, how many of us are glory mongers, right? I want it all to look at me. That's not what you're to suffer for. He says, uh, not only murderers and thieves, but evil doers. That is, you just, you just do bad things against people because they deserve it, right? Even if they're not like you, or don't think like you. I mean, I'm going to give them what's coming. And, that, and that's not what we're to suffer for. And then he just kind of winds up, everyone says meddler. This is a really cool word. It's only found, this is the only place in the New Testament. The idea is uh, someone who oversees the affairs of others for the purpose of uh, going against them, right? So the idea here is, uh, I don't know, maybe an inflammatory Facebook post uh, that you know is going to get people riled up, right? Uh, maybe you just know at the meeting that you're at with work when I say this thing or when I do this thing or, I mean, I'm just saying. Any statement qualified by just saying. Y'all, let me, just anything, nothing has ever, ever needs to be just said, right? It's like I want to say the weight of this, but I don't want any of the responsibility. That's meddling. And so what Jesus, what Peter is saying to us in Scripture is that's not what you're to be known for. That's not what you're to suffer for. If you suffer for those things, it's because you did it, not because it's God's desire for you. That, here's, here's, here's the idea. Okay, let's go back to the wedding scene. Let's go back to the wedding scene. Uh, ladies, let's imagine um, that it's, it's your wedding day or whatever. Just go back to your wedding day or go to the future for the day that you want or uh, however that works. Maybe you're called to singleness. Just imagine you're at a wedding. And, uh, and, and in that process, in that moment where the, the doors open up, and the bride begins to go down the aisle. Do y'all have a cousin? Like, 
You know what I mean? Like that cousin. Okay, so that cousin who you thought was going to be okay, that you thought forgave you for whatever a long time ago, the doors open. Ladies, you go to process down the aisle, and the cousin comes in right behind you, cuts in front of you, and she, or he, because he's making a statement, also has a wedding dress on. <laughs> Can you, I mean, just honestly, right? Some of you, some of you ladies, your heart in that moment just a womp, I mean, just dropped. Like, what, what are they doing? This is not their moment. This is my moment. I'm the one that's the bride. This person is not the bride. This moment is about all for me. Can you imagine that? That by somebody's actions, the glory that goes to the one who is who deserves it, would be taken away. That's what Peter's talking about. And when we, when we live our lives in such a way, we bear the name of Christ. We bear his matchless name. We are a living exposition of Christ in this world. And when we live in a way that's taking life of people, or that's taking things that aren't ours, or that's doing evil against people, or that's just meddling in stuff, that that is not how we're to glorify God. In fact, in that process, he says, don't do that. It's a command. Let none of you suffer for those things. That's not your business. Your business is the glory of the, ma- of the matchless king, of King Jesus, whose name and spirit you bear, because that's where you have your worth. And if today you're finding worth in anything less than Christ, there's some really bad news. And that's where Peter's going to go. Because Christ, suffering, helps us see that Christ is worth. He has worth. Suffering helps us see, it reveals the worthiness of the Christian. But suffering also helps us see the trustworthiness of the Creator. It's interesting what Peter does here. He talks about the glory of Christ revealed through suffering. He talks about that you get to bear and share in that glory by his name and with his spirit. And so you endure suffering and glorify God when you, when you do that, for, when you endure suffering for his sake. And then he goes to verse 17. Here we go. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What, is, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's, Peter's super tricky. He uses, like, technical language here. The idea of time is that there is, uh, there is an occasion, okay? So, for it is time. So, this isn't talking about, like, finally, you know, judgment has come. No, no, no. There has been an occasion. Think, when Peter wrote, just, this is not a trick question. Just, like, think through. When Peter wrote First Peter to exiles, when, he, when God is speaking to you and me from this living text, he's speaking to us from... Is it before or after Christ has come? It's, bef- it's, it's, it's after, right? I almost, <laughs> that was bad. It's, it's after. So it's not like, hey, we're waiting for this moment for judgment to come because the judgment here isn't the act of judging, the process of judging. The, the, the word judgment here is, uh, it, it is the, the decision that's been made. Like the decision has been made 
There has been an occasion where a decision was made, and look at the product of this decision, this occasion where the decision has been made, this decisive decision, that's the same thing, the decisive moment has happened to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, if it's occurring with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So this is where it gets real. He's saying that in this suffering, we are living out the process of what happened once and for all at that occasion where the decisive moment happened for those who would be in the household of God. We're suffering because we're living out the implications of that. What in the world, what occasion is he talking about? He's talking about what the, those who believe in the gospel of God. He's talking about Jesus Christ who came and suffered and died and rose again. That decisive moment that death died and victory was victorious, that sin was atoned for, and everyone who would believe would be saved. He's talking about that moment, and in that moment, those who would be in the household of God are given one hope by one salvation through one Christ by one God. He's talking about that very moment moment, and in that moment hangs all of your eternity. So, so look at this, right? That's the gospel of God. You not only get better, you get God. You get the very matchless name of Christ. You get the very matchless worth of his spirit. You get this beautiful God who now not only dwells around you, but in you, and you get to bear his name and reputation, the gospel of God. And then he, he clarifies for us in verse 18, why that's so important. He says, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, some of your translations say barely, or uh, some, some say with great difficulty, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This word scarcely, barely, when I was uh, a teenager, a friend and I, we, I grew up in Florida, you know, and uh, there's snakes and gators. Every, the whole thing, the whole thing is, right? Like all the houses are just built on old swamps. And uh, turns out they don't care that you live there anymore or that you live there now because they've lived there forever. And so occasionally, you, you, you know, you run into wildlife and it's beautiful. And uh, if you, you know, for you, those of you going on summer vacation, if you go to the East Coast, it's the shark attack capital of the world, right, of Florida. So be blessed, brothers and sisters. But uh, my friend and I were driving and uh, we were, uh, we saw a snake in the road and uh, kind of went around it. And, uh, well, we, we did what 16-year-old boys do when you see a snake in the road. You, you stopped, turned around, and went to go catch it. And so we found a tree, and uh, it was when Steve Irwin was uh, a big deal. And, um, and so, you know, he breaks sticks off of trees and catches snakes. That's what he does. And so we tried to break a s stick off of a tree, try to catch the snake. It didn't want to be caught. Can you imagine? And so uh, it was a cotton mouth. You know that because they rear their head back, right? They kind of curl up. And they have this big white mouth and they show their fangs and then they just strike. And so this cotton mouth is uh, like striking at us and uh, we're just, you know, trying to catch it and be awesome. And then suddenly out of nowhere, do you remember the old Superman movies uh, where he would just kind of like, you know, appear, right? You know what I mean? Okay, so we have the he our headlights on this snake. Out of nowhere, this guy just appears and says, what you boys got there? And uh, I said, we have a cotton mouth. And he said, where is it? I said, it's right between your legs, right? Like, <laughs> be careful. He looks down and goes, oh, boom, puts his foot on it, grabs it behind the neck. 
this thing starts like reeling around. He didn't grab it far enough up by the head. It turns around, tags him in the hand, and then now he switches the hand out and goes, oh man, I got God, and walks away. <laughs> right? So like, what do, you, what do you do? So we got in a car and we drove away, and uh, you know, yeah, and then I started thinking that, like, what happened to that guy, right? So we, we turn around, and we're driving through this neighborhood to find this guy, and uh, we finally see a guy leaned over on the back of a pickup truck and uh, kind of shaking, and a friend with a shovel hitting the ground. I think, I think we found our guys, right? And so I go up, and I'm not making any judgments here at all uh, against uh, NASCAR fans. I'm just pointing out the fact, just pointing it out, that they both had NASCAR shirts on. I'm just saying, because it's important, right? It's just an important detail um, that has no bearing on the story. But, uh, but the, you know, so he's like falling. And, and so I'm like, man, you, you need to call 911. And the guy hit with the shovel says, oh, he'll be fine. I said, no, he's, he'll be dead. Like that's, you need to, we need help right now. So we called 911, uh, the ambulance came, and uh, they, when they finally got there with the anti-venom, because this, I mean, he got, his hand was, it was bad. He got got. And when he got got, he had this, this, I mean, this toxic venom coursing through his system, just going all over the, I mean, everything was, it was, it was bad. And so the, the ambulance showed up, and, uh, and he, as he was fixing him, he looked up and said, who called 911? We said, well, we did. He said, thank you for calling us. This guy is going to barely escape with his life. Barely. He had one hope, and it was this ambulance. Dude wouldn't have made it to the hospital. The only way he was saved is because he barely made it. There was one hope. That's what this word barely means. It's not like the cross of Christ like kind of squeaks you into heaven. It's that it's it, with great difficulty, there is no other way. It is only through the cross of Christ that the righteous enter into the kingdom of God. And so then look at the rest of verse 18. If the righteous is barely saved, there's only one way. It's just one unique way. There is no other hope. They are dead in their sin. They are barely saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? They have no hope. And so Peter ends in verse 19. Because there's only one way, there's only one to whom you can entrust your soul. Look at what he says in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, if you're in here today and you're a follower of Christ, but you're living a life that does not reflect entrusting your soul to a faithful creator, you're a glory stealer. And there, like, God takes that pretty seriously. I mean, he, he died on a cross so that his glory would be revealed to you. And maybe, just maybe, you're placing worth and value and weight on things that cannot bear the weight that you are designed to give glory to. What is that for you, follower of Christ? 
as you're thinking through that, we don't get to escape this text, right? As you're thinking through that, maybe, just maybe, you're in here today and you've never entrusted your soul to Christ. I mean, in that story, you're the dead guy without, or you're the snake-bitten guy without the ambulance. You have no hope and there's only one. And maybe today, for the very first time, God is beginning to open your eyes to see the beauty and value and weight of Jesus Christ unmatched because he is the king of glory. And you're beginning to see that you have sinned and fallen short of that glory. That's what that means. Well, I have bad news for you. You got nowhere to go. Literally, uh, verse 18 is, uh, where will the righteous be? Like, where will they appear? It's a rhetorical question that goes, well, the end, they, nowhere. They got nowhere to go. They're hopeless. So if today God is opening your eyes to see the unmatched beauty of Jesus Christ and you find yourself not living up to that, I have great news for you. There is a way. As Christians, we, we, we say, according to Scripture, we confess our sins, we believe in Him who was raised from the dead, and we're saved. We call it being saved. So if today you find yourself at a place where you know you have no other way, I have good news for you. There's one way that saves. In fact, right now, uh, with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to enter into a time of response. If you're a follower of Christ and you've been giving glory to things that can't hold that glory, whether it's a relationship or a job or a reputation or whatever it is, I mean, you, you deal with that in your heart right now. But if you're not a follower of Christ, right now in this moment, I'm going to ask you to do what all followers of Christ have to do, and that is to confess your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Like really believe, not know about him, believe on him. And in that process, he will seal you with his spirit. He will give you his name. And your life from this point forward is to be used for showing the unmatched worth and value of Christ. So if you're not into that, don't pray to receive Christ. If you don't see that, don't respond in this moment. But if right now the Lord is opening your eyes to see your need for a Savior, would you just talk to God right now and say, tell him right now. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. He'll agree with you. God, I pray that you would save me from my sins. Tell him right now in this moment, I believe that Jesus came and died for my sins and was raised to life. Tell him right now that, that I, I give my life to you. I ask you to forgive me. And God, from this point forward, seal me with your spirit. Let me bear your name. And help me to live a life that brings glory to you. As we continue in this moment of prayer, I'm going to pray over you. There's going to be some music as they come up and start playing. And if you're a follower of Christ and you need to pray with somebody, there's going to be some prayer team members up front. In fact, if you're a prayer team member, go ahead and come on up. 
In just a second, I'm going to pray over you and then ask you to stand. And if you need to pray with somebody, they'll be here. But today, if you are, if, if today for the very first time, God has opened your eyes to see your need for salvation, would you just come up and let somebody know? We'd love to work with you on what the next step looks like. We'd love to share with you more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so whatever your needs are, we really want to be able to help you be more in love with Jesus and more like him than when you came in here this morning because he's worth it. So let's pray and then let's stand and then let's respond. Father God, I thank you for your word and your truth. God, I pray that today you would save those who were lost. God, I ask that in this moment you would open our eyes to see our need for redemption. Lord, I ask that those in here who are followers of Christ, who've been living a life that does not honor you, that God, you'd give them the courage and conviction to respond. Lord, as you search their hearts by your spirit, would you allow them uh, to see their need to repent of sin and to be like Christ, reflecting his glory to this world. Lord, I pray for those in here who do not know Christ. God, I ask that you would save them. Lord, I ask that you would help them to cry out to you. Jesus, let us all respond in the way you've called us to now. It's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.